everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 74 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance on your yippee ki yay motherfucker podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. This is the last episode before we have a short hiatus here on Pop Culturally Deprived. Uh, we are going to be doing some holidays in June, so we've got one more episode after this coming up that we are not sure what it's going to be about, or what we're going to do, or how we're going to do, um, and then we're going to have a couple of weeks off. So this is the last formal episode. Uh, Matthew, don't be coy. It's not just a holiday, because you are getting married this weekend. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's not several weeks away. No, this weekend, absolutely. Well, it's okay. It's several weeks away from when we are having this conversation, but it's this weekend for those of you who are listening. Oh, time is hard. Time is so hard. <laughs> Podcasting is basically time travel. So, yeah. And uh, super exciting. Uh, while you are listening to this episode right now, I am also in London and this is going to be fantastic. So the next episode that you hear from us will be Matthew and I recording together in the same room and it's going to be amazing. I, I keep wanting to call it a live recording. It's not a live recording. <laughs> it will be for us. Live, but, you know, in-person recording. Yes, and it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> so. It's it's kind of funny. It feels like there's a sort of narrative of this is the, the season finale for season one of Pop Culture Deprived. Season one that covers Die Hard through lots of films, into Die Hard 2, lots more films, into Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance. And then a hiatus during the summer with a few special episodes, a few guests, a few different things happening, and then back into season two where we cover whatever the next films are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a special time for this podcast, and it's wonderful. Yes, so we don't know what the next episode after this is going to be. Um, chances are we'll be recording and putting it out pretty unedited. Uh, for time constraints and um, pretty certain it's going to go out early for our patrons because i know they're going to enjoy that one <laughs> then as there's going to be a couple of weeks with nothing uh, so we are going to be taking a proper break and then some special episodes mandy yes the first two episodes in july will feature guest hosts who are not matthew Matthew is letting me take over and be in control for a few weeks without his oversight, and it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> you might want to be a little bit scared. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and then we'll be back properly in uh, July 17th with The Dark Crystal. Mm, interesting. It's going to be good fun. This Absolutely. is a good summer. I'm really excited about what's coming up this summer. So. Yeah, and you'll be over here... Um, in London, hot town summer in the city. <laughs> Which brings us round two. <laughs> Die Hard 3. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we watched Die Hard, the first film, as our first podcast together. Mm-hmm. No, let's say that again. We watched it as the first podcast we released together. <laughs> oh, that is true, yes. For, for keen listeners of, of quite how comfortable we were by that point. And then we did Die Hard 2 this Christmas, just gone. Because mm -hmm. they are both Christmas films. And then we did this earlier in the summer than the film is actually set, but we it, it sort of fits better with this kind of summer atmosphere. What were your expectations for Die Hard with a Vengeance? I 
was trying to temper my expectations because I knew I would probably like it because mm. at this point I loved Die Hard and I, you know, I enjoyed Die Hard too. It wasn't as okay. good as the first one. <laughs> but then so many people have told me that Die Hard 3 is so much better and that it's their favorite of the whole franchise. And so I was trying really hard not to let myself get like all hyped up and expecting it to be the greatest thing ever. Okay. So I expected to like it. I think that's okay. that's kind of where I came out on it. As I was like, this is going to be good fun. I'm going to enjoy this movie. I didn't feel like it was a chore to have to sit down and like go through. Right. Did you have any expectations on the story or anything that happened in it? No, not at all. I had okay. no idea. I mean, my assumption was going to be John McClane gets up to shenanigans because that's what <laughs> Die Hard is. But beyond that, I knew that Jeremy Irons and Samuel L. Jackson were in it. I didn't know who was the villain, who was the trusty sidekick. You know, John McClane doesn't really have sidekicks, so I was kind of surprised mm. by Samuel L. Jackson's character in this. Um, but yeah, I, I just went in thinking I'm going to watch explosions for two hours featuring john mcclain hooray <laughs> what more could you ask for exactly um, th this is my die hard i i know i'm one of the people who said to you yeah it's the best of the series um this is the one that came out at the cinema when i was age appropriate for it. nope nope when i was roughly age appropriate for it um i went to see this uh so the the next town over from where i grew up had an abc cinema that had like five screens <gasps> amazing oh, wow um so my mum dropped my friend barry and i off to see this and we queued up to get tickets and i go first and the guy says hey how old are you and i go i'm 14 and he goes no it's a 15 you can't come in <laughs> oh, i no. legitimately 100 percent assumed this was a 12 just for whatever reason, I thought it was a 12. So I, I didn't even think when he asked me, because, you know, I'm a nice kid. So of course, I'm going to tell the truth to an adult. <laughs> so he went, no, you can't come in. We went, oh, okay. So we go back outside, wait 10 minutes for my mom to get home, phone my mom at home, ask her to come back out and get us, <laughs> and then take us to the cinema in our in our town, which is one only has one screen. Unfortunately, there was a about a time appropriate screening. So she takes us to that and then we go inside and buy tickets and she waits outside just in case there's still a problem. <laughs> oh, your mom is so nice. She is, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> age appropriate roughly. Um, okay. But yeah, this was the one that came out of the cinema that I was excited about because I loved the first two already. Um, I talked about obviously watching them on, on video a lot. So... Yeah, this was always going to be one that appealed to me very much. And, and I think it is a wonderful film, as, as we'll get into in the, in the conversation. Okay. This this film was made to delight me. Oh, that's exciting. I like it when mm -hmm. we do films that were made to delight you, because we've done a few mm. recently that were made to delight me. So it, it's nice to shake things up a little bit. Yeah, this is a good one. Before that, though... <laughs> All right. Well, released in 1995, Die Hard with a Vengeance is the third installment in the Die Hard franchise. Like the original Die Hard, it was directed by John McTiernan. Bruce Willis reprises his role as John McClane, and this time he is joined by Samuel L. Jackson as his plucky sidekick Zeus and Jeremy Irons as the villainous Simon Gruber. The script took quite a journey before finally ending up with what we see on screen. It began as a film called Simon Says, which was to star Brandon Lee. Warner Brothers then bought the script and rewrote it as a Lethal Weapon sequel, 
and it was then purchased by Fox and rewritten as a Die Hard film. It was the highest grossing film of 1995 and eventually brought in over $366 million with a $90 million budget. Despite the box office success, the film received mixed reviews. It's received a 52% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and Metacritic gave it only a 58 out of 100. The critic consensus on Rotten Tomatoes says Die Hard 3 with a Vengeance gets off to a fast start and benefits from Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson's barbed interplay, but clatters to a bombastic finish in a vain effort to cover for an overall lack of fresh ideas. Entertainment Weekly's review said that while McTiernan stages individual sequences with great finesse, they don't add up to a taut, dread-ridden whole. But Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, noting that the movie is basically a wind-up action toy cleverly made and delivered with high energy. It delivers just what it advertises with a vengeance. So if you haven't seen Die Hard with a Vengeance, here's my brief synopsis. Once again, Bruce Willis's John McClane is flung into action by a grand scheming villain and must use his wits to come out on top. Or, as IMDb puts it, John McClane and a Harlem store owner are targeted by German terrorist Simon Gruber in New York City, where he plans to rob the Federal Reserve Building. That's thanks, so IMDb. Boring. <laughs> yeah, thanks for spoiling the Act One reveal. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, it, it spoils two reveals there. Like, yes, not only yeah. is he spoiling who the villain is, they're spoiling what the actual ultimate end goal is. Hmm. Which took like three reveals to finally get to. Yeah. Yeah, they let us in on it actually quite early. It's it's basically at the same point they reveal who he is. We then see his plan kicking in. Mm-hmm. But I like that it's fully kept from the police. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, how did you watch Die Hard with a Vengeance, this film that was made specifically to delight you? <laughs> I have got the uh, Die Hard Trilogy DVD box set, which came with a still frame from the first, uh, just sort of negative image, basically, from the first film. Um, and I think it's wonderful. This is just such a great way to close out this trilogy. You know, and it's I, I really like that they never sort of needed to spin it into further sequels and just keep trotting it out. It's such a core, tight trilogy of three great films. Sigh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How did you watch it? Well, this time uh, I did not have to rent it or look for it on Netflix because Joseph owns all of the Die Hard movies because he's about as fanatic about them as you are. Awesome. So I just had to, you know, stick it in and watch it. Nice. I, I couldn't find it on any streaming services. I did have a look, but it wasn't available. I should have looked, but I did not do my due diligence, and I apologize. <laughs> um, a couple of new actors in this film that we've not mentioned before. So Jeremy Irons and Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> What's your experiences of them previously? Uh, Jeremy Irons is Scar from The Lion King. Yes. Did, yes. did you find that all the time that he was doing the, the voice on the phone? <laughs> oh, yes. It was so hard. <laughs> it's like, I can't unsee Scar. Like... He's talking on the phone to Scar. That's what this is. Like, Scar is the <laughs> villain of this movie. And then uh, once they finally showed his face, um, I recognized him as uh, Batflex Alfred from the DC Extended Universe versions of the film. Okay. 
right? So That's one of him. The, the great modern British actors, you recognize him from like Justice League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Okay. 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 That's it. I'm a terrible person, I know. But but I mean, come on. My podcast is called Pop Culturally Deprived. Yeah. Okay. Please don't be surprised by this. <laughs> um, Samuel L. Jackson? Um, we, we have talked about him before, but I, I looked him up and actually got really, really excited about some things that I didn't realize he was in before. So obviously I know him as Nick Fury and I believe in my notes, I referred to him as baby Nick Fury. Um, <laughs> but the first time I ever saw him was in a movie called The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I maintain is one of the greatest action films ever. Uh, I was reminded that he was in Star Wars, A Time to Kill and Jurassic Park when I looked up his filmography. Mm-hmm. And then I got really excited because, oh, my God, Samuel L. Jackson was on this PBS show called Ghost Rider. <laughs> I had no idea. And that was my 100% absolute all-time favorite television show when I was a kid. Okay. And so I actually went and pulled up a clip. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Samuel L. Jackson. Fantastic. <laughs> Double uh-oh. Your grandma said you were coming right home after school. Where you been? Did I? And you lied to me, Jamal. I told Lieutenant McQuaid you would never lie to me. And now I find out they have enough evidence to arrest you for arson. What is going on? Yeah. And we've done a few things on the show mm. that I hadn't previously seen before. So because of the show, I have now seen Pulp Fiction and The Incredibles, which he is in. So right. my, you know, we are actually proving that I am becoming more pop culturally educated. Mm. And I think we will return to those two later. Jurassic Park's absolutely the one. His character in this is not too far from what he looked and acted like in Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Um, But there there was a comment on one of the trivia things that he has since said this character is the closest to his actual personality. Which I can see actually quite sharp and quite smart, but very prickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I am also very aware of uh, Samuel L. Jackson doing the audio version of Go the F*** to Sleep. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel it would be just like a travesty if we didn't mention that. <laughs> um, you reminded me in the history there that, that this at, once, at one point was supposed to be a, a Lethal Weapon film. Have you seen any of the Lethal Weapon series? I have not. Okay. Maybe it's one to put on. It really does. Like, as soon as I heard that, obviously a while ago, but yeah, I can completely see it. It does feel like a Lethal Weapon film. The the dialogue, the sort of action, the way it's set in this. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Did you enjoy this film? I did. Great. Good. Yeah, that's all you get right now. I did. Join us next week for... <laughs> I think it was better than Die Hard 2, but not quite as good as Die Hard 1. Ooh, interesting. Uh, can you elaborate? What what was better in Die Hard 1, or what did this not do as well? Oh, I like how you just completely ignore me thinking it's better than Die Hard 2, because apparently that's just a given, and <laughs> duh. Well, yes. <laughs> I think I liked Die Hard 1 better just because... It was my introduction into this, and I really loved it. Like, I was shocked at how much I loved Die Hard 1. Right. And and so those feelings... I'm an emotional person. We keep coming back to this week after week now. Like, <laughs> I, I thrive on emotion. I respond to emotion. And so I have kind of that nostalgic, 
oh, that's the first one we did for the podcast. And I'm so excited that I loved it so much. And so some of that, it's going to be hard to top that, I think. Okay. Yep. But it also had Alan Rickman in it. And Hans Gruber was kind of better than Simon Gruber. Oh, interesting. But that might just be because I'm biased because it's Alan Rickman. Right. Maybe. Okay. One of the big conversations we had about Die Hard was there was there were a number of things in it that as we were watching it, you were like, oh, that doesn't make sense, or I don't believe that, or I don't buy that. And you, you talked about it throwing you out of the film. Did we have anything like that here? <laughs> we did. Um, only, surprisingly enough, it was only the bits about John and Holly. Right. Okay. No, that whole, it did, made no sense to me. Hmm at all the whole point of Die Hard 2 was that they were so in love that John McClane would do anything to save her when she is in danger I mean Mm -hmm. that's what that movie was about we would not have had that movie if Holly hadn't been in danger and John didn't want to save her and now moving into the third movie they're divorced he's back in New York and he just decided not to call her back one day well, she's That's the part woman. that I don't buy, so. <laughs> okay. See, given they were already having troubles in that first film, and, like, the, the film sets up the thing of, oh, and they're staying together because they've been through this experience, but I can sort of get it that, yeah, a few years later, they might start going, yeah, there were reasons we were having trouble when times were good, when we weren't, like, being taken by terrorists. Okay. See, the hopeless romantic in me doesn't doesn't do that. Okay. Like, okay. romance and fiction is not based in reality, and so <laughs> no, I just don't buy it in the story. Can you gloss over the fact that there is no Holly in this, effectively? Yeah. Um, it did make him kind of into a bitter old man that was slightly different mm-hmm. than what we had seen mm. before. But it, I mean, it worked well enough. I think. Okay. I liked that Holly wasn't a plot point this time. Yeah. Yeah, she's not damseled, obviously, because she's not in it, but we at least stay away from doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Although, certainly in that first film, she is a very good character, so. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. But you thought this was better than Die Hard 2? Oh, absolutely. Die Hard 2 was extremely formulaic. It really had no purpose other than to say hey die hard was really successful so let's try to do the exact same thing over again and then they didn't Mm. do it yeah and this one actually had even though the script itself was rewritten from several other previous stories it was different enough that it it was its own story in its own right it wasn't john mcclain just happens upon some sort of terrorist plot it it Mm. was you know, he was the whole revenge aspect of this was wonderful, even though it wasn't actually revenge because, you know, Simon didn't actually care about his brother. It just he was able to make John a pawn in, in his story. But to ground it in that revenge scenario, I thought was mm. brilliant. And it was completely mm. different than anything we had seen before. Yeah. And I liked that it, it was its own story and it wasn't just let's see if we can retell the same story for the third time. Yeah, because there is a point. You're like, no, it wouldn't keep happening to one dude. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. Getting a bit incredulous. And and I like the escalation of it's a building, then it's an airport and environs, and now it's a city. Sort of that works. It is it is diehard, but we're not always doing it. He, he is 
contained in this one place and going up and down elevator shafts and right so i liked the i didn't like the riddles themselves but okay. i liked what the riddles made john have to do like have to go to all these different places to try and you know keep the villain at bay mm. it was nice and and that was it was nice to have the villain have the upper hand for a little while in this one. It wasn't just out of the gate, John McClane is smarter and outsmarting him. Yeah. Because in this one, Simon knew about John McClane, knew the kind of man he was. And so he could start from the beginning with the assumption, this guy is a smart ass, but he's also intelligent. And so I need to do something to keep him busy. And that worked for me. Mm, absolutely. And, and that's a, a little bit like that first film because that is about Hans's plan is just going smoothly and then he starts messing it up more and more as it goes along. Right. Mm. Um, you remember when we talked about The Dark Knight Rises, I talked about how we had another film on the list that was about someone kind of taking on a city but also doing a personal story with one person as well and that it was done much better elsewhere. This was the film I was talking about. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Mm, it's it's a kind of a similar idea, but the fact that the two stories come together much more strongly, uh, and partially part of that is because the taking on of John McClane is integral to what he does to the city to distract the police, whereas mm-hmm. the taking on Batman is just the icing on the cake of destroying Gotham. Right. But I do. I I feel like it works here when when John gets back into the game where he does that bit of actually no, we're going to go after those trucks because we've started to work it out feels much better than just Batman comes back to Gotham because he wants to beat up Bane again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. They are very similar in structure, but mm. Die Hard did it better. Yeah. I, I don't think I tweaked until we watched uh, Dark Knight Rises this time. I okay. think because I knew this was on the on the horizon coming up. <laughs> right. Mm. So one, one place that this movie diverged very significantly from the first two was mm-hmm. with the addition of Samuel L. Jackson's character. Mm-hmm. And while I really, really liked his character and I liked what he brought to the movie and his banter with John McClane, like their relationship with each other and how it kind of grew over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. One thing that kept coming up from Samuel L. Jackson's character, and it started from the first moment he was on screen was this idea of, racial tension and right. and racism and i mean even, even from the very beginning he was talking to his nephews and you know one of the things he said was who do we not want to help us and the two boys said white people and mm. he just kept this like diatribe up the entire time through the movie it just it kept coming up randomly he would say things that were very racially driven mm. and it was tough to watch because it's so kind of relevant to the world today. But at the same time, I don't understand why it was a part of this movie because it had nothing to do with the plot. Ultimately, it didn't impact the relationship between McLean and Zeus Carver. So why was the choice made to constantly throw it in the audience's face? That's something I don't quite understand. If it had had a bearing on the plot and Mm impacted the riddle or whether or not they would have been able to beat Simon Gruber, it would have made more sense to me. And so I just kind of, 
I don't want to say it threw me out of the story just because it's really nice to watch Samuel L. Jackson yell at people. <laughs> but it did confuse me a little bit. Yeah. I think there, there is something. Those reviews you read earlier uh, and talking about not necessarily having new ideas and, and uh, being very similar to other films. I think watching it now is different from watching it in the mid-90s when action films were like this. I wonder if there is something that this was, uh, if you were pairing up two people of different races, you would address it somewhere. And, and this film does it very heavily and very often, so perhaps more than you might normally expect. You'd almost expect it to be anachronistic, but actually 23 years later, it doesn't feel like it's changed. So it's mm-hmm. almost too real for comfort now, which is why it stands out even more. Like, oh, we, we're still dealing with this and we still have this as a, a problem societally. Yeah. But I also, like, uh, if we're saying why, there's there's so many different things. I, I feel like at times it's used for humor. Mm-hmm. But at times I feel like there's almost a cynical, oh, we're going to make the black man the racist and that's going to be really interesting as something new and original. And it's like, well, no, because you've actually made his points really understandable. Mm-hmm. Like why he would go, no, we do not want white police around here because this is going to make things so much harder for everyone's lives right you know and the the history that he and his friends and family and community must have experienced so i I don't feel it comes off as that if that was ever the attention and maybe they're just putting it in to bring it to attention and to try and have a dialogue but clearly nothing's changed yeah it was definitely an interesting thing to watch in 2018 and realize Mm. you know this is the same and it's very disappointing that yeah. it's a cultural thing that is the same and just hasn't gotten better. It may have actually gotten worse. Hmm. And I feel like you have to address it somewhere, maybe not as much as they do here, but you do have to have something in there because otherwise oh, you get arguments of people not being written well or not being written well for the way they're supposed to be portrayed. Mm-hmm. So. So let me ask you this question then. So Mm. the first task that Simon sets John to do is to Mm -hmm. go wear the sandwich board in Harlem. And do we ever find out what his intended end result of that was? Because, you know, Zeus obviously intercepts and they get away. And then the, the rest of the movie, at least the rest of the first half of the movie, Simon is baiting them with children's riddles, which is very different from ghost stand in Harlem wearing this message. And so that felt a little bit off to me and it didn't really make sense. Am I just supposed to go with it? I think so. Uh, I can probably headcanon it. Something like, because the whole point of, of all the bomb stuff is to keep the police occupied and out of uh, out of Wall Street. Right. Is it Wall Street where the Federal Reserve is? Yes. Let's go with yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, so that's the whole point. So if McLean is killed there, it probably it makes the rest of the setup harder. So to get him to be the one to have the bomb, to be chasing after the bombs and then detonate the subway car. Because the, the, the crux of it is detonating the subway car where it detonates. That's mm-hmm. the, the thing he needs to have happen. But if there is... A policeman killed in Harlem, potentially rioting, potentially more police out, potentially things going on there, an embarrassment for the police in the um, in the press. 
at the very least, it's good revenge on John. At the very most, it's a start of, right, let's get the police occupied, get them dealing with stuff they shouldn't be dealing with, with a uh, terrorist on the loose. Okay. I that's that's probably that. how I'd headcanon it. But yeah, if McLean dies there, how does he then justify at least blowing up the subway car? Right. Well, I mean, I'm assuming he could have done it anyway because it was on it. I mean, McLean didn't trigger it. It triggered itself. No, exactly. So it still would have happened. It just nobody would have known about it. And so it, the police wouldn't have been distracted trying to find it. Mm. Well, they get distracted because he says you need to find the other bomb, which is in a school. Right. And you and you can't use your radio. So that clears all the police out of Wall Street. It was clever. Yeah, the, the that whole setup, and, and like I say, having the two stories, the personal and the, the larger one, but then bringing them together, it's a really good plot. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. I definitely can agree with that. And mm. That's why I continue to maintain that it's definitely better than Die Hard 2. <laughs> and the use of Samuel L. Jackson, like he is integral to this whole thing. It does not go as well without him. So it's mm-hmm. not just John McClane being exceptional. He actually has other people who help him. And, and one of the reasons that I love the film so much is, by and large, everyone's actually pretty good at their job. They're pretty good people. They're not you know, wonderful and exceptional and amazing. But the police are doing the right thing. They're trying to hunt bombs. They're trying to take, take um, care of the people. They're trying to deal with the children. And then even the people who go back into the building to save the children and are petrified at the end that the building's going to collapse beneath them in an explosion. Like... Mm-hmm. These are all good people. Where the other diehard films are, no one comes out of it well. Like John and Al and the janitor in the airport are the only people who come out of any of it looking good. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that frustrated me the most about Die Hard 2 was how they kept ignoring John mm. and how they wouldn't listen to him and they actively kept him out, even though they knew that he had the knowledge and the expertise to help them. And in this one, they did the exact opposite. He's already on suspension. He is already in trouble. He is a you know detective in disgrace. And as soon as they know they need him, they go get him. Mm. They don't say, "Oh, well, I can do this by myself. I can mm. figure this out without him." You know, there was none of that arrogance mm-hmm. that we had seen previously, and that was also a really nice change. Yeah, and when he then starts sending messages to them, and he gets the. Um the lorry driver to go and tell them about who Chester A. Arthur is and what's 21 or 42 and so on. Like, they trust. They're like, okay, this is a clue. This is a thing we should pay attention to. They mm-hmm. are actually pretty good at their jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it makes it makes the film so much more believable because there's all these sundry characters who are just so well drawn. Like that lorry driver who has the quirk of just all these random facts and he's just so, you know, affable and friendly and willing to help people. There's there's lots of minor characters like that that you go, uh, yeah, these people are all pr- quite believable. Mm-hmm. And for me, that it it makes it feel fuller. Almost possibly that's one of the things with the, the race dialogue as well. It just, in, in watching all the films that I'm watching this year, there's a few films that I've seen that I've gone, it was good, it just felt a little light. And I think comparing it to this, that is a film that has so many different, Elements of the film, different moving pieces, bits of the dialogue, bits of the character traits. Then all these sundry characters who are interesting and well-drawn and only have a couple of minutes on screen. But you get a lot from them as well. That's what I think I will use as my example of a film that feels complete and full. 
there's nothing that happens in this that you're like, well, that was a waste or that was a character I can ignore. Everyone's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Are there any other sundry characters that stood out to you, the, the minor characters? Uh, nobody by name, but I was actually really impressed by one of Gruber's villains mm-hmm. who refused to leave the briefcase bomb behind because he was afraid a kid would get it. Yeah. Like, that was a really nice moment, and that's a moment you don't expect. No. And even the guy, like, who, who put it down, he's like, I don't want to ride with a bomb. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, as the first step on that, yeah, you could believe that. But also, yeah, yeah some kid, kid could. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it. It was really nice. Mm. And yeah, thinking about the villains, like, I really like Katia, the 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 woman villain. <laughs> Smurfette to the, to the bad guys. Because um, she doesn't have any lines all the way through, but she sort of stalks through the movie. And, and is the one who comes across as pretty brutal with that curved knife. Oh, yeah. Yeah, e- even that, she is a- an interesting character. I got excited when she first came on screen because I couldn't see her face because she had those glasses on. And okay. I just saw kind of her hair and how she was walking and carrying herself. And I totally thought it was Mary Stuart Masterson for a minute. And I was going to be <laughs> really excited to see her play a villain. But then it was totally not Mary Stuart Masterson. See, I'm having to look her up because... Okay, I'm. I can't else. remember who she was. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I looked her up because I th- I got really excited. I was like, "Oh my god, is that Mary Stuart Masterson?" Because like the set of her jaw and the, okay. literally the way she walked after she you know tore down the wall in the Federal Reserve and she kind mm. of crawled over everything to get in. Like she was walking very much the way uh, Mary Stuart Masterson did as Iggy in Fried Green Tomatoes. Right. Which is such a weird character to compare to this one, I know. But it just, it sparked a memory and I thought it was her. And I was like, I really want to see her be a villain. And then it wasn't her. <laughs> um, she was still fantastic. It just wasn't Mary Stewart Masterson. Oh, well. When you said it in my head, I imagined Mary Louise Parker from West Wing and Weeds. It's like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was also, in, they were in Fried Green Tomatoes together. And that's oh, why I they? always get their, yeah, I always get their names mixed up. Okay, um, but it, it was definitely Mary Sue Masterson that I was thinking <laughs> of. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So an interesting thing about this is, <laughs> I made the statement at one point, like I think I even made Joseph pause it. I turned and looked at him and said, "I really want to be an evil overlord." Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why? Because, so you watch this movie and you, you've you got all of these different people who, they're different kinds of people. You know, you've got the the people who are driving the dump trucks and you've got the people who are pretending to be security guards and you, you've just got all these varied people from different walks of life and they are all so completely loyal to Simon Gruber. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think this happened in the moment when... Um, Zeus finally made it to the stadium and he's there by himself instead of with John McClane and the two people who were waiting there to kill them both, Mm -hmm. you know, they're rather than just saying, oh, I'm a villain and I'm supposed to kill them. They wait and they ask permission. And when Simon says, let him go, they let him go. Hmm. And just that's a level of loyalty that I want in my life. <laughs> I I looked at Joseph and I said, I just want people to do what I tell them to do. 
<laughs> and I, I, but I want to do it without actually being evil. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think you need to be a villain to get that sort of control over people. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Like, I don't want to actually be a villain. Like, I want to tell people to go feed the hungry and, like, give money to the poor and just have them do it. <laughs> Can I be that kind of overlord? <laughs> yes. If you eat all your greens and work hard at school. <laughs> yeah. So that's what came. That's what I got out of this movie is that I want to be an evil overlord who isn't actually evil. Okay, well, that's a good point to talk about Jeremy Irons, because um, mm-hmm. he's not like Simon Gruber is not as iconic as Hans Gruber, as Alan Rickman. But I think he's probably as interesting a villain, but because they're on a level, Alan Rickman was the one who came first, so he's the one you elevate. And he right. has, a, has a much better death sequence. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, although I will say, say hi to your brother is pretty good line yeah. right before he died. Well, I think we don't we get like three in a row of like, say hi to your brother and then a yippee ki and then maybe even something else. It's like, okay, you're allowed one. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> But I love, like, you don't see Jeremy Irons until the end of Act 1, until the the reveal about um, him being Simon Gruber. But the the bit before that where he's on the phone and he knows who all the agents in the car are and he's naming their, like, their quirks, the chewing on the glasses. It's like, okay, this guy knows his stuff and is pretty cool with it. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, just, okay, he's a good villain. And then he's setting these interesting puzzles and has a great grand scheme. And, like, turned catcher against her boyfriend, lover, husband, partner, whatever. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, I I liked his plan, too, because it, it wasn't super clear what he was trying to do until the end. Because, mm. you know, at first, with the reveal of who he is, you immediately assume, oh, this is a revenge scheme. Mm. But then, like, right after that, I think even in my notes, I was like, oh, is this, like, really an elaborate scheme for him to robbed the Federal Reserve. But then right, like, not too long after that, they kind of subvert that, and he says he's robbing it to destroy it and put it in the body. And so then you think, oh, well, he's, like, a virtuous villain. (laughs) And then you find out, oh, no, he was really supposed to share the gold with people, but he's double-crossed some of them. And so it's just, like, layer after layer Mm. kept getting peeled back. It was never just... I want to open the vault. Yeah. You know? And and I liked that because it kept me guessing. I like it when I don't know what's going to happen because, God, entertainment and media is so formulaic so often that mm-hmm. sometimes I figure things out that I should not be able to figure out up front because my, the way my brain works is I'm always looking for the twist. Right. I'm always thinking, what are they going to subvert? Like what is going to be the surprise reveal? And I usually do get it a lot of the time. Hmm. Like Joseph hates watching black mirror with me because within the first (laughs) 10 minutes, I'm always like, Oh, here's what's going to happen. And he's just like, how did you figure that out? And I'm like, it's a formula. Yeah. It's the most obvious twist. So, (laughs) and so whenever you, when I can't do that, when it's layer after layer after layer, I really enjoy it more right. because it keeps me guessing. Okay. And that is what made Simon Gruber more interesting 
than Hans Gruber. It's just Hans Gruber is more iconic because, like you said, he came first, and he's Alan Rickman. Mm. And and the puzzles that Simon sets, I think, are... Uh, I get the impression you didn't like them at all, but I like their actual genuine riddles and puzzles that you have to think about and work at. It's not just which wire do you cut. That is true. I think I just didn't like them because they were children's riddles, and so they just made me feel uncomfortable in this okay. like grand scheme of I'm trying to like blow up the city, but let's fix it with children's riddles. Mm-hmm. Although, I did know the answer right away to the, as I was going to say, knives, I met a man with seven wives. I yeah. was yelling at the TV have you, screen have you on done that, that one. Before? Yes. That one I knew. I was like, the answer is one. It's only one. Come on, people. (laughs) It's a good riddle. It is a good riddle. Hmm. It's a very good riddle. I mean, all of the riddles were good. It's just, they were, they just felt out of place and made me feel uncomfortable because they were children's riddles. Okay. I can understand that. Well, okay, so one of the other things it does is is in the sequences with the bombs and the riddles, but then particularly as we get later with the massive bomb in the school and what's going on on the boat, is is it's trying to ramp up the tension. Like, it adds mm-hmm. that time element to it of, okay, you've got to call me back in 20 seconds, or you've got to do this by this time. And every step of the film, it's, it's trying to make us tense about whether they're going to succeed or not. Did you mm-hmm. feel that tension, or was it just, it's an action film, so I expect it's going to be okay? Um, I did feel the tension because there were so many things going on that the expectation is that something is going to happen. Like, they're not going to make all of these deadlines. Mm. And so I was trying to figure out which one it was going to be. And particularly with the bomb in the school, I honestly didn't know until, like, that last second the bomb wasn't real. And so I was panicking because the kids I was so mad you know they went back in to get the kids and then instead of coming back out the way they went in they went up to the roof on a building that's about to explode yeah why yeah I'm not sure about that either I mean maybe because it's several (laughs) floors up they didn't think they'd have time to get back down because he he does say like oh we'll jump to the next building and then it's too far like yes (laughs) yes this is not the matrix (laughs) Yeah, so there was some tension there, mostly because the kids were there, you know, and I was like, Mm -hmm. they got everybody out, oh, there are these four kids left, two of them are Zeus's nephews, Mm -hmm. so yes, this tension is, like, super ramped up, but then we find out, oh, it's not a real bomb, and then we find out, oh, crap, the bomb is the boat that everybody else is on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do, even with the nephews, like, the reason they sneak away, because they think the police are there for them, like, it's kind of believable, that you'd have these kids worrying about it in such a way and that it would then make them go and do this daft thing and it's it's a nice setup from what we have at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is a very well-structured film. I like it a lot. It is. It mm. really is. Although that sequence where they first pick up John and they're in the van with him, like it's just littered with references that are going to come up later. He's like, oh, there's 14 dump trucks been stolen. Oh, hey, what lottery number do you play? Oh, hey, how's Holly? Oh, hey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. That, uh, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I, I forgot about this. When that whole sequence, like, I stopped it and I rewound it and watched it again. And then I turned to Joseph and I was like, I've missed something I don't understand. And he said, oh, well, these are just things that are going to come up later. And I was okay. like, okay. And then I completely forgot about it. 
<laughs> yeah, except it, for the badge number. Like when the mm. badge number came up at the end, I think I made a note. Like, does that qualify as Chekhov's badge number? Yeah, <laughs> if you have Cause... if you if you have a string of numbers in Act One, you, they have to go off in Act Three. <laughs> right. Um. So that that was the only one that I recalled like i had completely forgotten that they had talked about the dump trucks being stolen and all of that stuff at the Mm. beginning like that was just so far off my radar at that point because i was trying to figure out what was happening um but the badge number helping him realize oh this is one of gruber's people was nice yeah it's funny the bit with the them him realizing it's not gruber's people because as they walk to the lift he says like oh it's raining dogs and cats out there which is the, like, okay, tick, there's something strange going on here. But I never, ever picked up until this time that he also says, let's get in the lift. And that that's another clue. Because to me, it is just a lift. But then you go, oh, yeah, that's a, a European expression. So, yeah, it's supposed to be unusual to John and give him an extra clue that there's something odd going on here. Oh, yeah, I see. I didn't notice that. I, I think, think I assumed, for me, it was just the badge number that made him realize, mm. huh. Yeah, that's that yeah. final thing. But there is this, like, as they're walking, okay, the, this guy's not quite what he seems. Yeah, so he's already on guard mm. and, and like, really paying attention. And then he sees the badge number and he's like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. And just uh, one more thing that I do love in this. the the Putting the bomb in the school in Harlem. And John says to Zeus, like, he wanted to make sure he had your attention and that you were in the game. That's why he did it. It is from that point that Zeus is actually in the game. Because up until this, he tried to walk away or threatened to walk away at basically every point. Mm -hmm. Even when John starts heading into the tunnel and he shouts at him to go to the stadium. There is not a certainty that he's going to do that thing, but he does. Um, But then as soon as he finds out about his nephew's school, he is totally in it. To the point when they get to the bridge and he's talking about jumping down to the boat. And, And he's just so calm and certain like i can make it he is 100 percent in this now and prepared to help and do whatever it takes to the extent right. when he when he has the gun he goes up against simon and simon says I'll, i will never give you that code uh, which he's actually saying because obviously there isn't a code and it's not a bomb but samuel L. jackson actually pulls the trigger he actually shoots him and i, I love that in a film where you know that he's not going to be able to kill him like something's going to happen here but the character has the conviction to think he's going to actually kill someone like like we saw in avengers recently the character who pulls the gun i really appreciated it even though knowing it wasn't going to work right Hmm. i was surprised that he actually tried to shoot it and then i was surprised that the gun didn't work and then for it to be for the simple reason that the safety was still on yeah john didn't tell him that did he (laughs) yeah i was like i felt like john would have told him that well Okay, do we think that John didn't want him killing people? This is actually a nice guy. He doesn't want him having to do this. So he gives him a gun to make him feel better, but doesn't actually show him how to fire it properly. Okay, that's a possibility. I I think I can accept that. Maybe. Um, (laughs) But it it did put him in danger Mm. because it got him shot. Yeah. But I I do love that. Like From that moment, there is a discernible change in the character, and it really works. And, and the, the motivation he's been given works absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've been very serious about this because it is a serious film. I, I feel like there is a lot in here, um, but I would like to hear your favorite bits from it. I think this is the time that we can start gushing and talk about how much fun it is. 
Oh, it was a lot of fun. Mm. I I think basically all of the banter between Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson was pretty amazing. Right. Um, but I think my favorite bit about them was when they were at in the park. Whoa. At a bomb. Yeah, go, go ahead and grab it. Oh, you're the cop. Man, Simon, how are you supposed to be helping with this? I'm helping. But when are you going to start helping? After you get the bomb. <laughs> yeah. And I was just nice. laughing through that whole section. Um, just because they, they had, like, serious chemistry with each other. Mm-hmm. Like, just the banter. Like, sometimes it, it felt like they were just two people, like, two friends, like, ribbing ribbing each other instead mm. of the scripted conversation it was really nice yeah i think my absolute favorite thing though the thing that i absolutely could not stop laughing at and mm. it's so bizarre because it really was completely out of place and did not fit the tone of this movie at all was after gruber blew the dam and was flooding the tunnel and John McClane's trying to get out, and so he, he ends up on top of the dump truck. He's trying to get up to the vent so he can get out, and the water shoots him out of the vent straight up. Right. And he's like shouting or screaming or going or something. I don't remember the noise he was making, but I started laughing and I could not stop laughing. And then he just comes crashing down into the mud. <laughs> and I thought that was the absolute funniest thing I'd ever seen. Right. I could not stop laughing. <laughs> oh, and it's a very different piece of humor than we've ever seen in a Die Hard film. Well, that is exactly the sort of thing that makes me think of a Lethal Weapon film. It's a slightly ridiculous take on something from an action film. And that's what makes me think okay. of Lethal Weapon. So, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. It was hysterical. And I loved it. And um, and nice. then I think that the last thing was just God, John McClane just randomly, randomly looks at Simon Gruber and says, you know, your brother was an asshole. <laughs> oh, God, I love this country. You know, your brother was an asshole. Yeah, he really he was, was an asshole. He was an asshole. You, you got his number. Like, it has nothing to do with anything. Like, and he's getting ready to be beaten by the villain, and he's just like, you know, your brother was an asshole. Hmm. <laughs> and then Simon was like, well, yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> I think he I comes, they come back to it later, and he's like, yeah, but he was still family. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's fantastic. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a good movie all around. Yeah. That that chemistry between the two of them, uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis, is excellent. But then when you layer Jeremy Irons' sort of cool exterior on top of that as well, it, it all plays really, really nicely. Because a lot of Samuel L. Jackson's shouting in this film. <laughs> he spends a lot of it shouting at people. Uh, Bruce... Okay, wait. Doesn't he spend all of his time in all of his movies shouting at people? Well... Yeah, but up until the last few years. Like, the Nick Fury stuff is a lot calmer. Early Nick Fury was a lot of shouting. Okay. Oh, we don't watch face one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. But yeah, you've got uh, Bruce Willis doing that sort of slightly manic 
high energy acting that he's doing and Jeremy Irons is just cool and controlled. It's awesome. Oh, absolutely. Mm. What about you? How many how many things <laughs> can we put on your favorite moments list? There's there's two sequences, moments in this that um basically are the moments I'm looking forward to when I watch it. So before I get to them, um you mentioned that you've seen Samuel L. Jackson in The Incredibles and Pulp Fiction. And this film references one of them and the other is a reference to this film. So when he's talking about uh, he's working on a nice fat suspension and smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo, that is a line from the song that's playing in Pulp Fiction when Bruce Willis is in the car and hits Marcellus Wallace. The, the, oh. song, the song is actually going smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. And that's when he Wait, hits so Marcellus Wallace. <laughs> Pulp Fiction came out before Die Hard with a Vengeance? Like a year before, maybe. Okay. For some reason, I had that backwards in my head. Okay. Um, and, and even if not, it is still a reference to that song, certainly. Right, yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it, even if it is the other way around and that song was used because of a line in this, love it. I like interconnectedness. And then similarly, The Incredibles has a moment, uh, you know, when he's in the subway and the policeman pulls a, a gun on Zeus mm-hmm. um, and is like, freeze, you know, put your hands up. You can't answer the phone. He's just trying to be all cool. Like, I need to answer this phone. Like, if you're going to shoot me, shoot me, but I need to answer this phone. That is a moment that is directly pastiched in The Incredibles with the policeman coming across them after the burning building. And the policeman says, freeze. And he's like, I'm just going to get a glass of water. I just need some water. And then and then he freezes the guy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I would never have picked up on that. <laughs> okay. But, but there you go. Some, uh, some references you can now have. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But so uh, two, two bits in this that are my favorites. Um, the taxi ride where they go through the park. <laughs> Not Park Avenue. Through the park. Through the park, yeah. Um, and then get the ambulance as well. That whole piece is one of the best action sequences. So that, that sort of, you know, driving through traffic action sequences that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit in the, in that where they, they start and they shout at each other about what they're doing. Uh, where the hell are you going, McLean? I told you Ninth Avenue is the quickest Stop way south. goddamn yelling. I know what I'm doing. Not even God knows what you're doing. <laughs> Which is a great line. And then he mm-hmm. has to he has to go di- squeeze between two trucks, and you see that when when he does do it, you see the side of the car being scraped because it's such a close mm-hmm. thing. And there is a moment of quiet of Samuel L. Jackson just looking forward, seeing this is about to happen, and and there's no other sound. He just goes, "Oh dear," and then it happens. <laughs> it's back into the action, but that sort of moment of quiet in frenetic driving action is wonderful. Is is a balm to me. They're going through the park and there's lots of like, you, are you aiming for these people? No. Well, maybe that mime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line. But when we have the ambulance in front of them, there is a shot that is, again, one of my favorite shots of an action sequence like this, where the camera is clearly in a car that's driving down the street. And it then uh, is looking backwards down at the traffic it's passing and it swings to one side and you see the ambulance coming up the street and swinging into the behind the camera. So the camera's sort of still tracking this ambulance. And then in the background, the camera refocuses and picks up on their taxi coming out of a street further down and joining the chase. 
So to set that up, you've got the camera on a car that's moving. You've got the ambulance moving to come out behind the camera. And then you've got another street being used to have the taxi coming out. And there's just so many moving parts to that that in this one camera swing picks them all up and refocuses. It's absolutely wonderful. And you can feel like, oh, there's a lot going on here. This is high energy. Right. It is a great moment. <laughs> it must have taken like so many takes to get the skids right, to get the focus right, to get the different um the lineup of the cars so that you can see them both in the same shot. Like that took a lot of effort for for what is a couple of seconds on screen. Mhm. But it was it was a good sequence. Mm. It was very very high energy and very I wish tensive was a word. Tensive is not a word. It was very full of tension. Yes. <laughs> Tensionlessness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the other bit I'm always looking forward to and it's ridiculous. Um, you have Ricky, the cop, talking to the press and, and being silly. And that is, again, a very full... You know, the press are clearly people who know him. And there's a, a relationship and a history there. But then you have... Jeremy Irons walks in as... Um, from the city engineer's office. And he's got this accent. And he's just... Um, you know, Bob Tonson. We'd like to get an idea of the damage. <laughs> he just walks up, <laughs> surveys the scene. Holy Toledo... <laughs> I say, I say, boy. <laughs> it is a terrible accent, but it's so believable for this sort of grand character that he's putting on, where we've seen him be all controlled and cool on the phone and just, you know, who else do we have in the car? Oh, it's this person. Ah. And now he's coming on and playing a part to sort of dupe the policeman. I love it. I yeah. just love that moment. <laughs> I... I enjoyed it, but I had a hard time with it because at least on our television watching it, I had a really hard time hearing the words he was saying over the noise of the dump trucks. Okay. Like I rewatched it like three times trying to figure out like what is he saying to this cop to Mm. get the cop to trust him and take him in. And I finally picked up on the engineering office thing. But other than that, I got nothing because the dump truck noise was just so loud that the way our sound system is set up, I couldn't hear anything else. Uh, Oh, it's worth finding on YouTube because it is good fun. Okay. Yeah. And I think there is a difficulty in that as well because he's, I think, trying to slur his words to sound more American. You know, with a a sort of, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm not sure what to do with my R's, as it were. Um, He's like, there's a lot of money here. A lot of opinion makers. (laughs) It's awesome. Yeah, I, I look right. forward to that every time I'm watching it. Because it's just that moment of, holy Toledo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And and you've reminded me that there's the bit earlier where they escape from Harlem in the taxi. Uh, and they're sort of introducing themselves to each other. And he just keeps calling them like, Jesus, you know, is that your shop? Is that your, Jesus, we're gonna, we'll get down, we'll get you fixed up. And he's like, why are you calling me Jesus. Well, that's what he called you. He said, hey, Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a funny bit. I yeah. almost I almost picked that as one of my favorite scenes, uh, but I didn't. So I'm really glad you did. So it's, we talk about it. It is a great bit funny. of writing. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it is believable because if you heard someone say someone else, hey, Zeus. Yeah, it's right. a name. So. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. <laughs> I look Puerto Rican to you. all right well is there anything else that we need to discuss about die hard 3 aka die hard with vengeance 
Um, so, to my sorrow, there are more Die Hard films after this. There is Die Hard 4.0 and whatever the fifth one is called. A Good Day to Die Hard? Uh, one of them is A Good Day to Die Hard and one is Live Free and Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Okay, so four over here is called Die Hard 4.0. Over there it's called Live Free and Die Hard, I think. Oh, well, that's I interesting. Think. Okay. Because, yeah. I don't know. It's it's the different way around than films are normally called, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it is. Hmm. Um, any thoughts? Would you want to watch them? Yes. Okay. Do you want to watch them for the podcast? Yes. Can we watch now, how we how we do that? Them? Yeah. Yes, I think we can because I the suggestion has been made, and I know you and I have talked about this in the past. The suggestion has been made that we end the Die Hard franchise by watching. Either rewatching all of them and doing all five at once, or just doing the last two and then specifically paying attention to continuity. Okay. Um, I don't really know what that means because I haven't seen the last two, mm. obviously. Um, <laughs> but I think if we we can talk about the possibility of combining them mm. into a single episode instead of having to do two different ones even though you're still gonna have to watch them both yeah it might be interesting because i have not seen five i've only okay. seen four because oh okay didn't really enjoy four and five looked bad enough <laughs> okay that's interesting because i remember seeing trailers for five thinking oh that looks really good but i haven't seen any of the other diehard movies so mm. obviously i can't watch it okay so maybe next summer we return to them to close out <laughs> season two of pop culture deprived <laughs> all right maybe so maybe so well if you would like to join the conversation you can use the hashtag pc deprived on twitter you can find us on twitter facebook and instagram at eloquent gushing and you can also email us at podcast at eloquent and you can find us both on twitter i'm at mandy k and i'm at matthew vose pop culture deprived is 100 percent funded by listeners like you through patreon Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and behind-the-scenes stuff about other podcasts and helps to support the network and develop other shows. If you want to find out more, please visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing and check out the homepage eloquentgushing.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter with lots of information about the upcoming weeks and you can find all the other shows on the network there. It is eloquentgushing.com. <laughs> what? That reminds me. No, that reminds me of something. So... um before we started watching the movie, um, the cover, the DVD cover popped up on the screen and it said, um, I think it said, it had said something like Bruce Willis is John McClane. And before we even hit play on it, I turned around and looked at Joseph and I said, Bruce Willis is John McClane. <laughs> and then we watched it. John McClane is in this movie. This movie <laughs> is in your DVD player. <laughs> yes, it is. So we will be back in July with new episodes. So until next time, I am Mandy Kay. And this, gentlemen, as they say, is where the plot thickens. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.